When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from the Underbelly Festival, South Bank. Please, welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyds. Hello! Hello. I see you've gone for both sleeves down. Yes, I have. But your cuffs unbuttoned. Yeah, I think I might go for the one sleeve up fashionable look. Actually. Yeah, do the ad. Does anyone else? know the fashionable look, one sleeve up? Anyone else doing the ad today? <laughs> you've go. gone, you, yeah, that's an interesting shirt. <laughs> you know when you say interesting, yeah. nobody ever takes that as a compliment. I am a sort of shirt shamer, I'm afraid. Yes, I'm you, are, you are. Uh, thank you for coming. Anybody been to one of these before? Okay, anybody not been to one of these before? That's, That's good. good. I, either way, it's good. If, if they haven't, then it's fresh blood. If they have, then we're ever closer to starting a cult, which I know is yes, something you, uh, you, you aspire to. Right, should we do our reasons to be Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to have this shirt as my reason to be cheerful, in defiance of your unkind remarks. It's a nice shirt. I, your voice went very high yeah, as you said did, that. actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful actually relates to the podcast, which is that, um, have people heard of Park Run? Who does Parkrun? So I'm really proud of myself because... So the podcast got me into Parkrun. I first went on... Well, we, we went in the beginning of December and then I went on Christmas, dragged my family there on Christmas Day, which was sort of not great for them. But uh, um, And we went to Parkrun this Saturday. I went with my kids and Parkrun was off because there was a festival going on in the park. But I did it anyway. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that good? You did your own park run. I did my own park run. Can I just say that on Christmas Day, Ed also came to my front door and we all just sat there pretending not to be in. <laughs> Is that true? We didn't, we didn't know you were there until oh, right. afterwards. But were you trying to persuade me to go to park run with you? I, I, I'm always trying to persuade you to come to park run with me. I know, me. I'm otherwise, otherwise engaged. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yeah. So we're you talk- want to see the Constitution? You want to what? Oh, it's a Beatles lyric. They're a band from the 60s. Oh, right, I see, yeah. yeah. Um... Uh, I, I, you know, popular culture and all that. Um, so, uh, so we're talking about our constitution or our sort of non-constitution, and really, what do we do about the fact that we don't have a constitution or don't have a codified constitution? And I think, in a way, Brexit has kind of raised this up the agenda because people will see that. Dominic Raab was threatening to prorogue Parliament in the middle of the Tory leadership election. People weren't quite sure whether that could be done or not. Parliament you know, has spent the last two years not being quite sure what it can do. And so I'm delighted to say that we've got Professor Jeff King with us, who is Professor of Law at UCL, and Dr Hannah White from the Institute of Government, talking about wh- why don't we have a constitution you know, should we have a constitution and what, will, what would it mean for us? You might be sitting here thinking, does, does that sound that exciting? It does. We, you've got to wait does to... Does it sound ma- that exciting? You'd very be good. very good in panto. Let's invite Jeff King and Hannah White onto the stage. 
Thank you both for coming. Um, just, just to start, can we go through the basics of what is a constitution? How common is it for countries to have one? Are we that unusual? Do we have a constitution despite the fact that it's not written down? Can we sort of go through those things? Sure. Maybe first of all, like, sort of what is a constitution? Sure. So a constitution is that set of rules, customs, principles, judicial decisions that tell you what the main uh, organs of government are, you know, the legislature, the executive, the various branches of government, the courts, and so on, and which also provide rules for how you resolve disputes between different branches of government, let's say local and central government, or, and most commonly, between citizens and the government. And, and, and at what, what point in a country's history do, does a constitution typically, typically get thrown so up? Every, every country has to have a constitution because it has to have those kinds of rules, especially those rules that define how you make law. If you don't have those rules, you don't really have a legal system. At the moment, there are only three countries that I know of that don't have a codified written constitution. Three countries in the whole world. That's right. New Zealand, Israel, and the United Kingdom. So it's uncommon to not have the constitution codified in this way. That doesn't make it bad, but it's, it's uncommon. And what is, what is the overview of how it is here? Because we hear about us not having a written constitution. What do we have? So what you have is a good 750 years of development of customs. Uh, conventions are often called, like that the Queen must give royal assent to a bill that's been passed by Parliament or that uh, an act of parliament is the highest form of law. These things have evolved slowly over 750 years. Um, and, and many of them predated the arrival of democracy by many hundreds of years. So uh, the view generally is that, the, uh, amongst many scholars, is that the Constitution has adapted eventually in every case. When we needed to reform the Lords, we reformed the Lords. When we needed uh, uh, legislatures in the, in the devolved areas, that happened eventually. Uh, but well, we no, haven't really reformed. We've reformed the Lords a bit, but right, and we've kicked out the hereditary peers, sort mm. of. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say that's that's true. That that Lords reform didn't quite finish all the way when when yeah. when some political parties stopped it from happening. I think it was 2011. What? That was me. Uh, apparently, <laughs> was that me? I don't think so. Uh, but um, what? Why? Um, why don't we have a written constitution or a codified constitution? So I think there are there are historical reasons, and there are reasons of principle, and there are also uh, reasons because of vested interests. So historically, in most countries, you have some great upheaval, and then there's a decision to either create the institutions of government or fundamentally reorient them. And that's a sort of big bang moment in a country's politics. Britain's never really had that. So it's not quite had that. It's, it's been a process of evolution rather than, you know, having that big bang moment. So that's one reason. Another is that, that there's a principle, a, a political argument, that it, arguments of principle and grand design are really not that welcome in in political and constitutional affairs in the country. So Edmund Burke in particular had that view. The thought was, we don't like the sort of American or German style grand theorizing that the people rise up and have a constitution, but that we just, we have a good one that's working and we make adjustments as they're needed along the way. So it's a preference for incremental reform rather than big reform. I think it's more democratic and it's just, it's, it's harder to do it all at once. So that's the principled argument. But then I think that a really important reason is that there are vested interests in both of the leading political parties. The current constitution allows either of them, which have alternated in power in the last hundred years, to do essentially what they want once they're in power. So that's the elective dictatorship. The elective dictatorship point is simply that uh, whichever party takes a majority of the House of Commons can basically do what it wants, and it often takes that majority with less than 50% of voters behind it. Hannah, you worked, uh, before working in the Institute for Government, worked as a clerk in the House of Commons for 10 years. What was it like implementing our sort of non-codified constitution? Well, I think one of the aspects of the written but non-codified constitution that we have is that parliamentary rules are, are, are part of that. Parliamentary rules are one of the things which are written down and that have to be interpreted to decide how the country should yeah. run. My job was to interpret those rules and help um, members of parliament and the speaker and so on understand what they meant and what they meant for what should happen. And so, for example, one of the things I had to do was uh, when a new law came along called the Freedom of Information Act... 
and I was running a committee, um, and it's normally the case that committees in the House of Commons are covered by something called parliamentary privilege. And parliamentary privilege is a convention that MPs can't be prosecuted for something that they do in Parliament, something they say in Parliament. It's important to protect So MPs. you can't libel someone in Parliament. Exactly. You can't be prosecuted for libel yeah. if you say something. So when Freedom of Information came along, I had to think from the point of view of the committee I was running, what would take precedence, freedom of information or parliamentary procedure, a parliamentary privilege in relation to what the committee was doing. And this turned out to be quite um, important in relation to the expenses scandal, because uh, what some MPs tried to argue was that they couldn't be prosecuted for having misused their expenses, um, because what they were doing was covered by parliamentary privilege. Right. Um, and the courts actually found that um, claiming of, of expenses was was an administrative process and that privilege didn't apply. But that's just an example of where, on a daily basis, I had to decide how to do my job by interpreting the interaction between law and convention. And this has been very clear, hasn't it, with Brexit? Because, you know, it has felt very much make it up as you go along from the beginning. Cameron called the referendum 50 plus 1% very narrow, obviously, then, you know, he's been subject to the sort of courts and parliament sort of arguing and trying to work out what its power is. I mean, right. would that have happened in a, in a different system? I mean, presumably they, they have a way of governing referenda in these systems. Constitutions. Uh, they often, they often do. Uh, but I think, I mean, to the direct answer to your question is, I, I don't think that there would have been the degree of uncertainty. We had an important Supreme Court case, which had to clarify that that the Prime Minister could not notify the European Union that we're leaving and start the clock on the negotiation period until an act of Parliament was passed. So that was contested by government. It took a Supreme Court case to answer that question. I think in most countries with a written constitution, that wouldn't have happened. Right. What about the amount of discretion that, say, John Burko has had? Would that be different if there was, if it was a, a more codified constitution? I think not necessarily. I mean, what it depends on the constitution. Um, and we've had a lot of people say in, over the course of Brexit that um, the lack of clarity over what's happened in Parliament means we're in a constitutional crisis. But actually, in lots of ways, John Burko has just been playing his role to interpret the aspect of the constitution that's there and any constitution is going to have to be interpreted it just there's a question about who gets to do the interpretation and i think it's right to say that in a more codified situation it's more frequently lawyers and judges who get to interpret i mean it is a slightly crazy situation though isn't it that I mean, I was talking to a Conservative MP who shall uh, remain nameless, and he was saying to me that he was incredibly depressed about Boris Johnson winning because he just felt he was going to power through to no deal, take take us out without a deal, um, even though there wasn't a majority in Parliament for it, and that there wasn't a sort of there wasn't a kind of kind of lockdown way of stopping him doing it. Yeah, I mean. That just seems like, and it's just, we don't quite know if Parliament votes against no deal, can it stop him or yeah. not stop him? Would it go to court? So one of the practical difficulties with a, with a constitution is that there are a number of anachronisms lying around in the constitution, like loaded guns, essentially. The idea with prorogation is that uh, the prime minister can advise the monarch to prorogue or, or to terminate this calendar year of parliament. Uh, and stop all business in this calendar year, and it will restart in, say, November. The idea was that by stopping Parliament from meeting, the default position of no deal on the 31st of October would, would just happen. Don't you think if we looked at another country where there was this not just uncertainty about the issue, but uncertainty about who could do what and all that? To an, to an extent. It, it, it looks anachronistic. It's true that in Canada and Australia, they've also had incidents with prorogation of Parliament, so it's not, and they both have written constitutions. It's not like you get rid of them right away. But it would be rare. In, in many, in, I'd say most countries, this kind of situation just wouldn't arise. It's just that the, uh, the interaction between the Prime Minister and the monarch under our system means that some of these old powers of the monarch are just left there on the belief that they'll always be exercised according to democratic principle. But when you get into crises like this, it exposes uh, uh, that, you know, it's very problematic. Hannah, what, what do you, I mean, do you, you, you're thinking that Brexit, the, the Brexit sort of mess might not have been prevented by a written constitution? 
Well, I think that, as, as Jeff has said, what Brexit has demonstrated is that people don't understand our constitution. They don't understand lots of aspects of yeah. it. I've spent a lot of my time... Including most MPs. Well, I've spent a lot of my time on TV trying to explain yeah. what's happening in the House of Commons. And that's just not desirable yeah. for any country. Everyone needs to understand, in my view, the rules of the game. Um, now, it's, it's not the case, as, as, as again, Jeff's pointed out, that just writing things down necessarily makes everything super clear. And one of the important things to remember is that the act of writing it down will involve decisions. Because there are things that aren't clear, um, you know, there will be decisions to be made. Um, and, and so it's, it's a process. It's not just a, you know, well, one day we might decide that actually it'd be better to have this all in one place, so we just do it. It actually would be an active process to say we want to codify our constitution. Jeff, can we ask you about your idea, your proposal sure. for a constitution? Sure. So um, this is the Jeffocracy. Yeah, <laughs> but the J Jeffocracy. Yeah, J Jeffocracy. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, my my Jeffocracy is quite democratic. I mean, that's the point of the argument. Unlike yours. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the the argument that's often presented for having a written constitution is that it would clarify the constitution. This is what we've been talking about, or that it would protect people's rights against majority decision making in parliament or amongst the people. And my argument is slightly different. Um, I think there's some merit to both of those arguments, but the fact is, is actually the way that countries perform in protecting civil liberties does not uh, always go along with its court's capacity to strike down legislation. Uh, Organizations like Freedom House keep track of which countries are best at protecting civil liberties, and the majority of the top countries don't have this practice, actually. So that's a bit embarrassing. Don't have... The practice of courts regularly striking down legislation that violates but they the will have written constitutions they will yes yeah. they do exactly yeah. they do and so you don't need to have these powers don't necessarily go together the clarity argument is, is is a bit better because we've seen there's a lot of uncertainty in the constitution but if you know you might be purchasing that clarity at a very high price if there if the constitution that you adopt has a lot of features that are not good so if it's really hard to amend it means you could lock in bad policy if the courts become central political players that might be bad for the reasons we see in the united states so if there's a bad constitution i i feel it does yes uh, you probably want to know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkably hard to amend. Uh, um, you need uh, majorities in both houses of Congress, as well as I think it's uh, uh, three-fifths of the states to agree. Uh, representation in the Senate is not proportional to population. You have two uh, senators, regardless of how large a, a state is. And, um, and so, and Hillary Clinton could win the electoral, win the popular vote by what was it, three or four million, and still lose. And then there's no chance for really of amending the way that works. I mean, for future elections. Yes, this is another issue with it. Uh, although electoral systems are not always regulated by constitutions, right. but yes, that's that's another problem. So my my case for the constitution is simply that the people should be involved and have the right to decide what the laws are in the country. We always accept that for acts of parliament. We accept that the government sometimes makes delegated legislation or regulations with authority given to it by parliament. I'm saying that all of the rules and principles of the constitution should also be decided by the people or the representatives of the people. And how would you go about doing it? Because you've got a specific proposal about how it should happen. Indeed. So uh, my view is that uh, you know, you can either appoint, uh, you can have the executive try to do it. It could be try to be run by an ambitious prime minister. Gordon Brown had tried this. Or you can create a commission of experts. The, what I don't like about those is that ultimately you'll have to send whatever you come up with to parliament. Now, why should parliament not be the one with its, its, its hand on the reins? It's because constitution making should be a cross-party affair. And it's the nature of parliament that uh, a majority of a single party can, with much less than 50% of the popular, popular vote behind it, stop things from happening there. And it's also not in the interests of either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party to pass this through. So I don't think Parliament should have its hand on the reins, neither should it be the executive. What I think it should be is a specially convened assembly, uh, technically a constituent assembly, sometimes called a constitutional convention, which would be composed of people that would write the constitution and put it directly to the people for refer- approval by referendum. 
Now, the comp- and the Irish do, didn't do that, but they have used a constituent as a de- deliberative processes in the last few years. Indeed. So let me just distinguish between a citizens' assembly and a constituent assembly. Citizens' assemblies get together and deliberate about important issues, and then they have a report, and then that will go to the legislature, which will decide how to act on it. What I'm talking is about is different. They would actually write it. And it would go straight to the people. They'd consult Parliament, but Parliament wouldn't have a veto power on this. And that's important for the reasons I gave already. So the, the Constituent Assembly would be uh, two-thirds directly elected and one-third appointed uh, a direct appointment of citizens chosen by sortition. And I, and I understand that you're, you're great sortitionites. Two, you, you always have been, apparently. So, so, so two-thirds of people come from where? Two-thirds would be directly elected by the people. Uh, in my proposal is that it's done by a proportional representation system. and, and for those, So they would have party labels, probably. Exactly. And that's crucial in my proposal because you have to remember writing a constitution is really complicated business. It's not like one issue, abortion yeah. or gay marriage. This yeah. is the whole constitution. How do you avoid it just being a snapshot of where a country is at at that particular point in its history? It, it could be, and, and it's part of my argument that I don't argue for any particular constitution, but only for the process, because if, if you say what it should be, then it's not really a democratic argument. Um, but what I expect would happen is that a lot of issues, like Lord's reform, the voting system, the role of parliament in adopting treaties, the nature of the Bill of Rights, these will come up necessarily for discussion. It's, that's just how these exercises work. And I think once they're faced in this kind of context, when the results are not dominated by one party then you're going to get different answers than we now have. And, and when you were working for Gordon Brown, he yes. had this idea. We've told the story on the podcast before yes. that Ed found an oh, old Blackberry. Yes, yes I did. Uh, he decided that last year... It you could have doing, all, history could have all yeah. been different. Ed was doing a digital detox last yeah. year. He got rid of his iPhone and yeah. found an old Blackberry. And you found an email from Christmas Day 2000 and... I think it must have been 2004, I think. From Gordon or maybe, Brown. maybe 2006. Yeah. With a, a proposal for a written constitution in it. And I was sort of annoyed that he'd emailed me on Christmas Day. But clearly I should have sort of paid more attention to it. So it's your fault, basically. Yeah, that it is, my, it is basically my fault. Uh, um, I, I've still got the email somewhere. But, but, but at the time... Yeah. I mean, did it not feel like an exciting idea? Is that it part did of the problem? feel like an exciting idea, but I tell you what, I think the problem was. It, I, I remember having a conversation with Tony Blair, and he said to me, "Look, this constitutional thing that Gordon's proposing is not going to." This was, I think, after he'd gone, or maybe after Gordon had taken over, or just before. It's just not going to butter any parsnips, really. Um, uh, You're not going to do it in your Tony Blair impersonation. I'm not going to do it. No, no, it's not going to butter any parsnips. Uh, uh, um, but I, th- I mean, I think we kind of re- rechristened this the Uncle Melvin question. Yeah, so, so how, how would we get my Jeff's uncle? Jeff's got a, a, right. an uncle called Melvin. Uh, how do, what does it, why should Uncle Melvin care about this? Right. So for the same reasons that you believe that you should be able to vote for parliamentary elections, the same reasons that you think that, that acts of parliament are passed, that you should participate in that process, you should also be even more concerned about the most fundamental rules in the society, not just the Dangerous Dogs Act, but what the Constitution itself is. So that's the main argument of principle. And, and how we're governed, I suppose. Precisely. Yes. Where does power lie? Is there more local government, the House of Lords, all of that exactly. stuff? And presumably the monarchy is up for grabs in this too. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think it will still be there after the exercise, but the extent of its power is, you know, whether royal, how does royal assent function? How does yeah. prorogation function? Uh, the the prerogative of mercy, these questions will be on the table. So, uh, you know, you talked about these different points in a country's history, be, be a, a revolution or, you know, yeah. some kind of major event. Yeah. Could, could Brexit be the time, post-Brexit, to, to think about this and think about it as a way of unifying the country? I, I think it could be. Whether it unifies the country is a, a, another question. Uh, but what you see with Brexit as the con- I don't think that a written constitution would have necessarily stopped Brexit. I think it would affect how it happened. Uh, what I think, though, and neither do I think it doesn't lie in my mouth to say here's a constitution that would have would have prevented Brexit or would have stopped it or made it better. Um, so I, I don't want to suggest that my argument will will do something to ameliorate the Brexit situation. But I think at the same time that uh, Brexit is a crisis. It's a crisis for both parties internally uh, as well as facing the electorate. It's an occasion where we see a surge of a populist variety of politics that is 
incredible. It's an occasion for uh, nationalist politics in Scotland, which have, uh, which could be destructive of the union. I mean, uh, to become incredibly powerful at this time. And so I think there will be a, a, a multi-layered complex crisis. And it may be that uh, a really inclusive constitution writing process could provide some palliative to that. Hannah, Hannah what do you think about this proposal? Just from your institute of government or personal... Would it have made your job easier? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think if people had felt engaged in the process of deciding these questions, then they would have a better idea how they were going to play out in a situation like this. I think the the issue for me with, with Jeff's proposal is really a practical one. So, you know, he's talked about how to constitute his assembly in order to essentially break the stranglehold of Westminster over over the process to ensure that you've got these um, people who are part of the um, constituent assembly who have... Who have um, been appointed through sortition um, but my question is how you get parliament to a point where it would initiate this process because my sense is that parliament's latest encounter with a sort of more yeah. with a direct democratic process hasn't been a very comfortable one and although you know the vast majority of MPs are totally signed up to delivering the outcome of the referendum the idea of giving away power which you know I see your argument of you know involving the parties in order to make it not entirely seem like that. But the idea... And also there's a... I mean, just to be totally practical at the moment, there's a massive bandwidth issue. Yeah. I mean, this would be a massive process opening up all these most fundamental questions about the way our countries run. And therefore, it would be really important to get it right. And at the moment, you know, government is completely um, sort of subsumed by the task of doing Brexit, which is a massive task legislation, reorganising systems, setting up new systems, bringing all this legislation back from the EU. Um, and there's just a capacity point. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea in principle. Is, is there something... Sorry to sound like a sort of voice of moderation here, but is there something short of doing a written constitution on the lines that you talk about which might make the, the whole... Um, so kind of avoid a kind of Brexit Mark II situa- situation. I mean, look at address some of the sort of disasters that have befallen us. You know, the nature of a referenda, that the referendum with 50% plus one, Parliament not knowing what it's doing, you know, the potential to leave with no deal without us quite knowing whether the Prime Minister can or not. I mean, presumably no. I mean, presumably unless you have a written constitution, well, you can't stop any of that. You, you, I mean, the advantage of having had a written constitution in this context is that there would be a process for amending it, you know, right. and you'd, you'd have text there that says we are part of the European Union. You right. think, well, we, we have to remove that text, right? right? So now we have to use the formula for removing yeah. it. Someone would have thought, well, what are the, what's the role of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland in this formula? Um, you know, is it is it entrenched? Is it a supermajority? Uh, I tend to think that um, it, it, to answer your question more directly, if you think, is there a halfway house between what I'm proposing yeah. and what we have now? Well, I was inclined to say a statute that would specify a constitutional am- amendment formula, at least, a, you know, a process for deciding these kinds of things. But unless you have a definitive list of what is constitutional, you, it's very hard to do that. You, you can't really do it. And there is so, a sort of oddity here, which is that constitutional change has happened in the last 20 years. You've had devolution to Scotland and Wales. At breakneck uh, pace. European Convention of Human Rights incorporated into British law. The Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which is a sort of bolted-on thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, are, are, you mean, were you, are you suggesting we could do more piecemeal change? Well, I don't right. know, but I mean, it's, it's slightly odd that we've got piecemeal change without anything for it to sort of latch onto. Ex- I, I mean, I was just sitting here thinking that the, the fact that you, as, as an MP, are suggesting perhaps we could do it, you know, not the full thing, but yeah. just a, a little piecemeal way of doing it is a very classic, yeah. you know, UK way that we would resolve this. We'd say, yeah. well, that's too difficult, that full yeah. process. <laughs> is there just a little bit we could take, you know, deal with around the edge? And that's, I guess, your, your argument exactly. is that, that some people think that served us well, but actually when you get into a situation like Brexit where so many things come into play, you know, something like the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act was created in a very particular context to deal with a a situation, the the coalition government, it was essentially created to give the Liberal Democrats confidence that the Conservatives weren't going to pull the plug on the government, you know, partway through the the Parliament. Nobody would have thought at the time 
about the situation we're currently in with a minority government supported by the DUP and, you know, what happens if a prime minister, you know, a party elects as someone as prime minister who it turns out not to have the confidence of the House of Commons and what does that do to elections and so on? Right. Uh, Should we go to the audience? Hi. Um, If there was a written constitution, is there much appetite in this country for... um more of a judiciary uh, supremacy, like the interpretation of the Constitution by the judiciary? Really good question about the role of the judges, uh, which is is one of the potential objections. Indeed. So I guess I'm still not sold on the problem statement. Um, It feels to me like where we do have written constitutions, that's often just a situation where the debate gets moved into a different realm, effectively. It's not like uh, in America, as you kind of pointed out, that where they have a written constitution, that those issues don't still end up being very hotly debated or very complex to try and work their way through. If the politicians want to do something, they try to find their way. So I'm still not sure why, why we're saying that a written constitution is definitely better. Let, let me ask you, can you just hold the, the microphone for a second? So... I guess my... This wasn't the deal. I thought I just said one uh, thing. I guess, I, guess, <laughs> I guess my thing would be I de- they're definitely bad, written, problematic written constitutions, but what would you say to the argument that Brexit is the, is the kind of guiding, is the problem sort of thing, that, that if a country can get into such a mess... So, so an American... Um, actually, a guy called Joe Scarborough, who presents Good Morning Joe in America, said to me... Um, he said, uh, what kind of country has, like, one referendum on one day and then that's it for, like, the you know, you suddenly your, your country takes, like, this kind of massive kind of sharp turn and there's no checks and balances? And I didn't know what the answer to that question was. So I guess, in my mind, that was... The referendum was foolishly worded. Right. So we could have set it up in a way where it was... Um, it was better managed. It was clear that the question was, was, you know, in or out. It didn't give any of the detail that we needed to be able to actually act on it. Right. So... It was a specific problem with the nature of the referendum. Specific problem with the nature of the referendum, but also unclear to me why, if we'd had a constitution, that would have changed the result of the referendum. So not the result of the referendum, but the what's come after it and how we've had to interpret it and all those other issues that okay, have fallen good. around the referendum. Interesting. Should I start yeah. with judges? So I think if you look at um, sort of at polls which ask people who they have confidence in, judges come pretty high at the moment, um, certainly higher than um, sort of uh, uh, members of parliament. But so, you know, you could say that there's appetite, therefore, for, you know, judges to have, um, you know, a role in our system. But equally, when we had the Miller case with, um, you know, the courts being brought in to decide whether Parliament had to pass a law in order for Article 50 to be triggered, when that, you know, judgment was handed down, then we had, you know, popular newspapers arguing that these were, I can't remember the phrase, but enemies of the people, and, you know, and that is, um, you know, quite unusual in our system that actually the rule of law would be, you know, decisions of the judiciary would have been questioned in that way. That's quite a, a new situation for us to be in. So I think, you know... It's not necessarily clear that people um, have massive appetite for judges to, to decide everything. But do you think judges would be more engaged if we had a written constitution? Because the judges seem pretty engaged, have been pretty engaged throughout this process. There's definitely an argument that if you're codifying, there's, there's a strong possibility there's going to be more laws, and it's judges... Um, role is to is right. to you know interpret and apply the law yeah. as passed by Parliament, but that's like that, that last bit I think is important. So it's if you had a situation where the Constituent Assembly was coming up with the Constitution and then that had to go through Parliament and then the judges have to take into account what they think Parliament meant when a law was passed. So it's not just judges right. coming up off their own yeah. uh, own bat with with what they think should happen, but. There are worlds, I think, Jeff, and I can't remember, sorry, your proposal, whether um, the actual putting into law of the, of, of the Constitution in your scenario would happen directly from the Assembly or whether the Parliament would still have a role in that at the end. Yeah, it, Parliament's role would be consultative during the writing of the Constitution and nothing greater, and that's one of the reasons why the argument we don't have time for this doesn't apply here because it's, you constitute a separate Assembly to do that and then government gets on with its business managing the disaster. Um, the... The question about uh, is there an appetite to give judges a stronger role? I think the general answer is no. There isn't such an appetite. And there is also virulent opposition to doing exactly that. 
Um, why not? Well, from let's just someone who who believes in in bills of rights and uh, you know my, myself and many of my colleagues we're not so keen to massively increase the role of judges because we don't want the judiciary to become politicized we don't want the appointments process to become a circus like it is in the United States and because we think the balance that's shown of restraint but good faith interpretation of rights that exists presently is fairly good in, in interpreting things like the human rights act so there's no strong call for that it's certainly not in my argument but um, would having a written constitution by the very nature of it being a written constitution not increase the role played by judges? My view on that is that typically, historically, there are two sites in which judges get very involved. One is enforcing the Bill of Rights, and the other is in dealing with federal questions. You know, which is it Scotland or is it Westminster that has these powers? We already have legal frameworks for both of these now, and Contrary to what some say, the role of judges has not been that spectacular. There have been very, very little litigation about devolution, and the Human Rights Act cases that have led to legislative amendments have been very, very small in number, much smaller than what you get in Canada or Germany or even France. What about the problem case? The, the, right. you know, so the problem is let me, let me it's s- not solving a problem. There are other ways to sort of solve the, the, the problem. Exactly. So first of all, I just want to comment on that. I mean, if I'm saying that in a true democracy, people's representatives should decide what the law is, I don't have to prove that it will also do all these good things like raise GDP and so on. That's the reason that I like this argument. But I think, let's pick Brexit as an example. So I don't take the you have one thing you need to remember about referenda questions is that if they're if they're too nuanced, people don't know what they're voting for. That's why we have an electoral commission to do this. It has to be a really straight shot, and that means sometimes uh, oversimplifying. Now, what would us having had a written constitution have done? So I think it wouldn't have stopped Brexit for this reason. The decision to call the referendum would probably have been an act of parliament. Once the referendum decision, even by a slim majority, was yes, I think at least two-thirds of Parliament uh, of MPs would have supported carrying out Brexit. So let's say your, your uh, revi- amendment procedure requires two-thirds. That's not what I advocate, but most countries have something like that. It still would have got through. So what's the difference then? Well, if we had a written constitution, the role for the European Union, the role of Scotland, the, the procedure would have been spelt out. We wouldn't have had to have the Supreme Court case because everybody would have known there's a specific way you amend the constitution and it, it's these following steps. We are going to need an act of parliament. I also think that if, as what I'm proposing, uh, you need a referendum to ratify constitutional amendments, then in the current situation, we would have had a second referendum because the first referendum was about whether to leave. The second referendum is to decide whether the specific proposal for how to amend the constitution and what the relationship with the EU would be would itself have to go again to the people. Now, that's not my sort of... Uh, you know, uh, remainer way of trying to read jiggery pokery. No, I, I, I is that a word that this, people use, Jeff? Uh, right, okay, fine. I'll use it from now on. Yeah, um, that that's not something that I built into. The, I just realized it shortly before giving the lecture on which this article is based that that would follow from from my proposal. And lastly, I don't think we'd we'd have the situation with a royal assent and, pr- and prorogation of parliament if we codified the constitution within the last twenty years. Okay. Do we, do we want to ask about the Jeffocracy? Yes. Yes. Just finally. So I, I think uh, I'd be um, uh, amenable to uh, a constitution in the Jeffocracy if the, with a G rather than a J. Yeah. 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 But this is a beautiful moment—a J Jeff yeah. and a G Jeff yeah. sharing a stage. Yeah, yeah definitely. A lovely thing to witness. Um, <laughs> what What would if I put you in charge of the constitution, the pair of you? First thing, day one. What do you do? Well, I, I I think although you're a benevolent dictator, we should probably curb your powers and go through all the all the podcasts and work out all the uh, precedents and. Uh, we should definitely curb his powers. Let me tell you. And then we should you know this is your one shot at being prime minister. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know that. I, I know, but look, there's sometimes too high a price to pay. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think we need the buy-in of the of the podcast audience to, right. to ratify that these are the powers that you should have, Jeff. Yeah. Jeff. Oh gosh. Uh, well, if if I were put in power in a true Jeffocracy with a J, it would be I'd probably want to keep the first past the post system and keep things as they are because I could I could have much more power. But if if <laughs> if I was being true to my my beliefs, I think uh, what I would do is suggest that we would have this 
I mean, look, there, I have my views about what I would like to see in a constitution. I think you might be getting at this. You know, I think we should put social rights into the constitution, for instance. This is what a lot of my work has been about. But my case... So this is like rights to... Healthcare, health. social security. So that's another thing that a written constitution could do. It could. We'd put that... I think that probably... Uh, they might be there, they might not, probably not, in the current climate. Um, I would argue for including them, but my right. argument today, the democratic case, sure. it doesn't talk about content. It only talks sure. about the process. And it also has something to say about how deeply entrenched the Constitution is. Because if your argument is democratic, the people should decide, well, then you can't adopt a Constitution that will stay in force for, you know, many generations. It should be something that, or it should be kept in force against what a majority of people presently want. So... Um, to answer your question more directly, I would say that you would, I would institute this constituent assembly, let them get on with their work, and I would suggest that to, to con- abide by the democratic argument, the constitution should not be deeply entrenched, should be amendable by act of parliament and referendum, and that the whole package should come up about once in a generation for renewal. That is, that the constitution would automatically retire. Would there be elections in this situation? Because I think Jeff's not keen on elections this, with a G. Is that right, Jeff? If it's everyone else has been elected, it's fine. I'd just like to retain my <laughs> yes, position. Right. I'm not sure that's the way it would be working. We, you could be there ex officio, maybe. Okay. Uh, Jeff King, Hannah White, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, let's bring on Nish Kumar. Edward's just saying we've made a real mess of the stage. What a couple of mucky pups. (laughs) Good Lord. Have a seat, Nish. Thank you for coming. You were here yesterday. I was here yesterday. Same room. Andy Zaltzman was uh, recording his his podcast, The The Bugle, Bugle, which you were on uh, quite often. I noticed from Twitter that your mum was keen to come yesterday, but you didn't ask... None of your family asked for tickets to come today. Uh, so yes, my mum, my mum and dad really love Andy Zaltzman because uh, if you don't know Andy Zaltzman, he's a brilliant satirical comedian and uh, he's also a cricket writer uh, who writes for an Indian cricket website. So Zaltzman has an inexplicably large Asian fan base, um, uh, two of whom are Mr. and Mrs. Kumar. Um, so, so they didn't want to come and so see. So they no, this. they did basically. I forgot to tell them that I was doing this podcast okay. and I'm going right. to get a very angry text message uh, when this uh, when this podcast me. gets released. No. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> I, know, I know also that your in-laws are podcast f- your, your girlfriend's mum and dad are podcast fans because we yeah. saw them with you at Pod Save America. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They didn't want free tickets I basically, either. I basically forgot to tell everyone right. that I was doing this and so I'm going to get a string of angry text messages from my parents and my partner's parents. And, and your partner is dealing with, an, with quite a big issue. Listen, we got a fat bug. We got a fat berg in the house, and uh, I in basically the be in the no, house. no. It's like in the drains outside our house. There's a big like, and the thing is, I didn't really deal with it. 
last week. I just kept saying I'll sort it out. And then on Saturday morning, there was sort of a deluge of human feces uh, in our back garden. And, uh, well, you, you know, it was like... What is you're supposed to deal with it? You're mean? supposed to call someone who knows oh, how to... I, see, like, right. I, I don't know, plumbing, Ed. Oh, I see. I'm part of the Metropolitan Liberal right, Elite. Right. <laughs> I don't know how to do plumbing. Right. I can barely even pronounce the word without right. saying the B. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, we've called a guy, and he sort of got a big... But anyway, yesterday, as I was sort of standing there in a mess entirely of my own making, I felt very close to leave voters for the first time, <laughs> just refusing to did, acknowledge there's and a did problem you, and just pressing um, were you being blamed in the office, in, in the house, for this for this? No, no. I think what's happened is we, we sort of moved house very recently, and I think we've essentially inherited a fatberg. It's like when people move into a house in Scooby-Doo and there's a ghost there, except <laughs> instead of a ghost, it's a lump of human feces. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you, you, uh, you did a big tour around the country recently, but you've also done some shows in the States. Yeah, sure. What, what do, you know, as, as you present our situation, as you see it to them, how, how insane do we look? Uh, well, it's difficult because I think, I feel like all of the Americans that I met believe that they are in more trouble than us. And I, I think, I don't know whether you may be able to correct me on this. I feel that we are in more trouble than America because they have a constitutional, if he wins next year, they deserve everything. But... <laughs> They still have a sort of constitutional mechanism to scrutinise the kind of catastrophic decisions they make. But they he will also be gone after eight years. I mean, he'll definitely be gone after eight years again. Fingers crossed. Yeah, (laughs) like we we hope that he's got. I saw really upsetting Time magazine kind of digital front cover last week where they just had billboards for Trump campaigning for the next election for the next four years onwards and onwards and onwards and i but in theory he has to go whereas we are trapped in a ceaseless groundhog day nightmare yeah they're very downbeat about their prospects and they're sort of more i think they have a sort of faith in us that is completely unfounded (laughs) still still yeah i still think they feel or certainly the americans that i i mean i performed to it when i say americans it was in new york so I mean Americans in the loosest form of the term. Like, but yeah, they definitely, they definitely were very... They were more upbeat about our prospects than we are about theirs. But they're very baffled by the whole thing, in my experience. As are we. As yeah. are we. Um, you brought along some ideas, Nish, which yeah, sure. be potential reasons for cheerful if we, we pass them yeah, in the geophocracy. Sure. Do you want to give us your first one? Yeah, uh, my first one is um, anyone who refers to it as climate change from now on uh, is forced, should have to be strapped to the exhaust of a car for a full day and have the fumes pumped directly into their lungs. Like, I think at this point, you've got to be using the phrase climate crisis or fucking nightmare. Like, those are the, the only two acceptable terms for climate change right now. Like, I think that that phrase climate change is such a rhetorical problem for all of us because it just seems like, oh, it's climate change, be fine. Global warming sounds good. Like, that sounds something like something that's positive. And we, those, those sort of words that we use to describe it are, I think... Well, what, what should we be using, then? Hitler. What should I be using? <laughs> what should I be using? Just climate something crisis. that... Climate yeah, crisis. Climate crisis. Is speaking a panicky voice, as you say. It, yeah. yeah. I think that those kind of words and terms matter. Well, you think it sounds too, just too soothing? I think it sounds fine. Yeah. Climate change, you're like, oh, yeah, that means it'll probably rain later. Like, that's, I think that's genuinely how people view it, rather than... You know, there's a meteor five minutes away from hitting us, and we need to do something about it. Do you think it. it's changed though with climate rebellion? It is the message has got through to a lot more people, even in the past year or so. Yeah, I feel like that. But on the other hand, there seem to be a lot of people, based on the news this week, who are in favour of strangling the climate protesters by the neck. Like the fallout of yeah. that, the way that that's been written about. I mean, I saw Julie Hartley Brewer, who is not a good bellwether for anything, except possibly the majority of the British electorate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> say something like well in a few years we'll she's all coming along like- later by the way <laughs> <laughs> she said well in a few years we'll all feel like doing this and you know she sort of said that on a radio program and you're kind of like why why are you annoyed without getting into any of the issues that people shouldn't strangle other people which i can't believe i'm having to say is a thing that's bad we've got to relearn that lesson. yeah we've got to relearn that lesson yeah. you can't strangle women we could put that in the constitution. <laughs> I think it's in there in the law. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the way that you, the way that the sort of fallout of that is, I think is very, I think it's very weird. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, this week has really bummed me out. 
Like I know that it's not this, just the fatberg. Not just the fat. If anything, yeah. the fatberg has been the fun, like a bit of light relief. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, Western democracy is collapsing. But on the other hand, there's a big lump of poo blocking my drains. <laughs> um, but I don't know. For some reason, this week has really bummed me out. Like I, I feel like the way that the Boris Johnson story has been reported, and everyone's been like. Oh, I can't believe those bloody Remainers calling the police because a woman was screaming. Like the, the, and then the Mail this morning has done a like Sims house recreation of the flats. And you're like, it was someone's job to do that. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Um, and then the, you know, the fact that Donald Trump this week has had another serious allegation leveled at him and he's just sort of shrugged it off without any problem seems fundamentally depressing to me. And the fact that, you know, a, like an, an MP sort of strangled a woman and lots of her colleagues, lots of his colleagues have come out kind of being like, well, she could have had a gun. And you're like, he strangled her. Was the gun in her mouth? What the hell is wrong with these people? I suppose what is also disturbing about that is it's the first obvious time that Brexit, the sort of poison of Brexit has yeah. spread to a different issue because because that wasn't about Brexit. Yeah, completely. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, it was about... It's like, it's, yeah, but somehow it's all now kind of part of, like, this. there's a sort of culture war that you find yourself either side of, and somehow it's able to take in your position on Brexit, your position on women's rights, your position on gay rights, and for some reason also your position on whether or not humans should continue to live on this planet. Like, I would have thought that that would be a pretty universally, like, we're all in favour of that. But actually, can I make? A, can I sort of suggest something? Which is maybe it's only the people on Twitter who are in this war, or at least it's a lot the people on Twitter. In yeah, this but war. the problem is some of the people on Twitter are members of Parliament. That's sort of the issue, really, is that we can talk about the culture war as being something that sort of happens on social media. But Johnny Mercer is a member of parliament and he was out defending Mark Field this week. And Johnny Mercer is going, you know, and he's going to have a say in the direction of the next government as we go into the crucial phase we're told the latest round of crucial phases. I mean, I want to hold on to the idea that most people don't think you know, what Mark Field did is acceptable. Yeah, so do uh, I. Most but people think climate, <laughs> the climate crisis is real. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm sort of struggling because it feels like culturally, and I think Brexit has done this, is it's, it's created this kind of polarisation where it's not really just about where you stand on the European yeah. Union. It's actually emblematic of all of your values. And, and you do you find of, it with your audiences? No, my audiences are, I mean... Self-selecting. Listen, self-selecting. We're living in the milliverse, his audience. Yeah, my, well, my, my, I think my audience may be living somewhere to the left of the milliverse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, my audience... I literally walked out um, in Birmingham, and there was a row of people wearing Pride T-shirts, and a man had bought an EU flag to wave and you're like this is not representative of the British public <laughs> yeah. that's great you get to live in a parallel universe some of yeah, the time yeah I totally live in a completely different like adjusted reality where everyone is just very groovy and like it's really just a bit like, like this audience give yourself a cheer for being groovy yeah it's like you know I'm very aware that I've like I, I did whatever it is 60 tour dates over a period of about six months and did you meet I, a leave voter yeah, sometimes, and they, they've, the ones that there's two types of leave voter that come to see me. One of them is the people who are like, "I still think you're funny." Like it's like a sort of badge of honour that they, they they're able to enjoy the comedy. And you're like, "All right, fine. I don't know. I don't know what you got out of it, but fair enough." And then there's sort of another leave voter who gets angry and on two or three occasions heckled me, and I tried to sort of open up a meaningful line of dialogue with them. And on all every occasions, they walked out, and I said to my tour manager why is this happening? I'm trying to open a line of dialogue. And he's like, listen, they love to leave. If you... <laughs> <laughs> he's funny, your chore manager. He's very funny. It's like, if you're opening up... You be on the stage. If you've defined yourself in opposition to a group of people who likes to leave things, there is a chance they're going to walk out. But you see, I want to defend leave voters because I think most... Well, I think many leave voters would find you funny and yeah, you'd find sure. that you had a lot of values in common yeah yeah but i think that those aren't the kind of lead voters that are going to kick off like they they're, they're not going to kick off if they come to the show right so they they're not the kind of lead voters that you hear from really and that's sort of the problem i think with brexit as a whole is that at no point sit from minute one when she said brexit means brexit and no deal is better than a bad deal she immediately it deleted the existence of 
non-hard Brexit yeah. Leave voters. Yeah. I think it created a paradigm by which the only way to be in yeah. favour of Brexit yeah. was to be in favour of a kind of no deal, hardest of hard post Viagra erection hard Brexit. Yeah. Like that was the only way that it could possibly exist. Yeah. And as soon as and as soon as she did that, and I've sort of seen people, you know, there's there's sort of various discussions going on about that. And I've seen people say, well, it's people who it's kind of hard remainers who drove things the other way. And but I feel that by coming out and immediately saying no deal is better than a bad deal, she created the idea that the only version of Brexit is the hardest possible Brexit. And we're sort of living in the consequences of that decision. Because even when Boris Johnson was sort of yeah. criticising her, he would often refer to the Mansion House speech as being an example of when he was in favour of Theresa May's Brexit policy. So she sort of created a stick by which her opponents could beat her with. Another idea, Nish. Uh, every decade you lose another form of social media. Like every decade. Ooh, I think good. every decade you should have one social media taken off you. And I don't mean like randomly, I mean specifically. I think if you're 30 years old and you're still on Snapchat, you should be on a register. <laughs> I think that is absolutely unacceptable. Snapchat okay, okay, is a have... place for teenagers let's and have... you are there hanging around being like, hey guys, remember Blur v Oasis? Get out! <laughs> let's have some honesty. Who here is over 30 and on Snapchat? Straight off, <laughs> on a register, register. Pedo, pedo, pedo. So, when you turn 30, you lose Snapchat. has gone. You right, turn 40, 40, what happens? Uh, you lose Instagram. Okay. Like, people over 40, deposing like this, fuck off. <laughs> then, uh, then at 50, you Twitter. You've got to go, Twitter, you shouldn't be... <laughs> I've you got should. six months left. <laughs> make them count, Ed. Yeah, make the most of them. <laughs> make them all count. And I'm not quite liking forced retirement from Twitter, actually. Yeah, I think it might, you know, I think it might actually help everyone. And then at 60, Facebook, right? Sit, the thing, pe- people over 60 having political arguments over Facebook, it is so... Under- like, I have a great uncle in India, and sort of in my family in this country, there is no real... Sk- like, we all voted Remain. There's no real... We don't have that thing that... I have white friends of mine that like have have to impose no politics conversations rules at family dinners and stuff to maintain kind of order and decorum we don't really have that broadly in my family uh, but both sides of my family is from india and the kind of great schism there is over whether you are pro modi or anti modi and i see those kind of arguments play out on facebook and like my grandma's brother is like my great uncle who's like in his 70s it's like posting <laughs> memes like dank memes on facebook and you're like you have grandchildren like this is not okay and also what is a dank yeah, meme dank. <laughs> 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 is that the fat bug? Is that never, to do with the fat it's bug? It's the no. intellectual equivalent of right. a fat bug. Right. <laughs> I never thought I'd be in a situation where Ed Miliband was asking me what to explain the phrase "dank meme." Uh, uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's you know, it's like trolling. It's shit right. posting, and the, you know, he's when doing I, that to whom? Your your like, the, uh, the other half, the anti BJP section of my family. And what are like, they doing back? They're they're sort of like being like you piece of shit, and you know. <laughs> These are all people... It's so funny when they go... Because, you know, we in some ways, we're a very non-traditional Indian family, but in other ways, we're a very traditional Indian family. So, like, when you greet your elders, yeah. you, the idea is if you're a younger person, you literally bend over and touch their feet. Right. And so we are now in a situation where people are coming in, touching the elders' feet, and then standing up and being like, you piece of shit. Like, <laughs> it's such a weird... My mum won't let me join at her Indian family WhatsApp group because she says it is, and this is a direct quote, so filled with bile, I'm worried it will affect your mental health. Like, <laughs> that, it, because it, and, it, and I just think that if you're, also Dank if you're memes. over 60 and, the, and you're absorbing, the number one source of your information is Facebook. I think, honestly. Yeah, I think that is scary. Yeah, it's Or scary even under 60, actually. Because also, I think that you don't God, I was having an argument have... with someone on the train about Agenda 21. Has anyone ever heard of Agenda 21? It's some innocent UN document that's become a big right-wing conspiracy theory. And I was arguing with a woman who lives in Stoke-on-Trent that it wasn't, the world wasn't, <laughs> The world wasn't going to have some like massive. This is why you shouldn't talk to people on public transport. I keep <laughs> telling you. In 2021, there wasn't going to be some kind of communist homosexual revolution, which is what which is what Agenda 21 is all about. Uh, and but she that... said it was absolutely true. And then I said, and then I said to her, you know, honestly, you shouldn't believe what you read on on Facebook. You know, things like the BBC that they're, they're more reliable. Uh-huh. She said, the BBC, no way. <laughs> 
Now that re- I mean that did test my I mean Facebook is a disaster in that respect isn't it? But I and I do think that there's something about when you grow up with the internet if you've grown up with the internet from an early age and I mean this is not entirely true but people who are closer to being what's called digital natives I think have Is that you? Uh, no, I think I'm just on the uh, I'm just too old yeah. to be a digital native. I think basically everyone borderline is younger than me. Yeah, borderline. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I think that when you grow up, with he the is internet, borderline millennial. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you guys. You... I'm allowed to be on Twitter for another four years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, don't rub it in. Well, your constituency yeah. is millennials. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah, ish. Yeah, yeah. Right, so Not so much that guy, but... Does that, does <laughs> right. that give us sort of vicarious... Yeah, you have the uh, on, right. honorary millennial status, but in four... What did you oh, give up at 70? Oh, by the... I don't think there's anything left. LinkedIn. You're not allowed to... Get off, <laughs> get off LinkedIn at 70. If, if, the, if the career in recruitment hasn't happened by 70, it's not going to happen. Between 60 and 70, fire away on LinkedIn because there's a limited amount of damage you can do. I mean, in all seriousness, isn't it better just to not look at these things? Yeah, I... I, I mean, Twitter is yeah. awful. I've had, I went through a period of three months where I was off it, I think in late 2018, and it was really... I really found it good being not on it. But you got yeah. sent back in again, why? I did, I don't know. I just don't know. I, well, Cheap I think, thrills, you know. Well, also, we're all... I mean, you guys are, you know... Dank Podcasters, memes. you guys are yeah. purveyors of dank memes. Yeah. Didn't but, it feel great when you change your name on Twitter to Chaos with Ed Miliband and you've got 17,000 retweets and 42,000 likes. Think of the dopamine. It's all sort of, you know, playing with your head, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yes. I mean, there's a certain level of professional obligation for some, like... You know, you that's the it's a, still yeah. the, currently the most effective way to promote shows and promote tours and stuff like that. I just find pe- people kicking the shit out of each other on Twitter so awful. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it is. I mean, the flip, the uh, I don't think I never thought I'd be def- in defense of yeah. Twitter, but the only thing I will say is that being on Twitter has definitely opened my mind to because there is no editorial filter. On the one hand, yeah. you're seeing the worst of humanity, but on the other hand, I don't think. You know, like, I would have almost no awareness of trans issues without social media. I think that that's, like, a really positive thing. Reading trans writers on Twitter is a really positive thing. I think things like Black Lives Matter... That, that was facilitated, and even the Me yeah. Too movement, that yeah. was facilitated by hashtag-based yeah. participation. Yeah. And I don't think that those two movements could have grown so organically in an older media landscape. So I think that, you know... It, it, it's, it's a double you know, I've got sword. six months left. <laughs> and then I'm off. <laughs> hey, enjoy LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, another 20, for another 20 years. What's, uh, what's your last idea? Uh, politicians are not allowed legally to appear on comedy panel shows. <laughs> I've turned down every comedy panel show. I know! That's why I knew I was safe yeah. saying it. Yeah. I, I, I respect the hell out of that. Yeah. I just think that w- it's not done us any good. You know, I don't think in, 20, in 30 years' time... I mean, I don't think anyone looks at it now. But I don't think in 20 years' time anyone's going to be like, thank goodness Trump hosted SNL. That really was a satirical jab in the eye for his prospects. <laughs> you know, it's it sort of created a bit of an... And listen, I am part of a pro, the same problem because I also think this has to work the other way. If you can't have politicians on comedy panel shows, you can't have comedians on Question Time. And I'm happy to forego... That day of stress, and why? <laughs> and why do you think? Well, what's been the lasting arm? I think Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah, I think Boris Johnson is the straw that broke this Asian's back. <laughs> it, uh, I think the he fact was on. Have I got news for you? He a was lot. on. Have I got news for you? A lot. Nigel Farage has been on it. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been on it. And the thing is, I Nick think Nick Clegg was on it. Nick Clegg, in many ways, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's the worst. He's the abs- He's the facilitator of it. He's the Richard Hammond of this dynamic. <laughs> For those of you who've seen that Stuart Lee routine about Top Gear, Clegg is the Richard Hammond of the destruction of British political discourse. <laughs> anyway, what was I saying? Nick Clegg's the worst. Anyway, um, it. I had to stop my father from yelling at him at a Guardian event once. <laughs> my dad is so angry about Nick Clegg because my dad feels that he sort of betrayed... Anyway, all of that stuff. Do you know what? He was going to yell. I think it wouldn't have been particularly coherent. It might have been something like, fuck you, Clegg. Um, (laughs) Imagine being mistaken for Nick Clegg, which happens to me. Why do you get mistaken? I I mean, I get mistaken for Romesh. So I'm like, in many ways, we've all got problems. I know. 
white guy in a suit, I guess. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I just think that it's generally part of... I don't think that the line between politicians and entertainers should be as blurred as it is right now. I don't. People say to me, are you going to run for office? And I go, are you fucking high? Like, what? I am not qualified. And the very fact that people are even having entertaining conversation about it. Why do you say yes to question time then? Because I also have this... Re- okay, I got really drunk... And question time was on, and it was a bunch of people that I disagreed with. And I had, they had been asking me, and I had said no, because don't I had watch this kind it, of principle. I know, but I was Really surprised. don't watch it. And but, if you're a comedy fan, especially don't watch it, because you might risk seeing that thing that comes on after question time. It's gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the first two it's minutes gone, of that program. It's gone, it's gone. Yeah. And anyway, I, uh, I will not say anything about Andrew Neil because he gets, he does not like me, and he has made those views very clear, and I do not wish to stoke the beef any further. Um, <laughs> stoke the gammon. <laughs> that's your, your phrase. Uh, uh, that's your phrase, Jeff. I am disassociating myself yeah. from that remark. I think Andrew uh, Neil is uh, a very respectable broadcaster, um, and his hair is definitely real. I think uh, all of those things. <laughs> I think all of those things. He is one of our nation's leading lights... And it's you, not a wig. You agreed to go on, basically, in a I've drunken on, moment. I've been on a few times because I also have this weird, deluded... When you're, a, when you're brown... I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, sometimes you feel an obligation, which may be a completely deluded sense of, you know, self-importance or whatever. You have a sense that you have to say yes to these things because you are somehow representing your community and you are representing the views of people of colour and because there's so few of us that achieve prominence in the kind of media landscape when you get asked you sort of have a responsibility and how was it yes. you know it how was, was the experience for you well, I'm sure I you did, did well but. I did three and the experience was sort of like it was the first time I did it I was physically sick all day like literally unwell like no, yeah. no fat burg let's put it that way like <laughs> it was very thin um, but it, it, it was fine because I was on with Piers Morgan, which actually oh made me felt uh, made me feel legitimised. Because you're like, if he's on it, I can definitely be on it. <laughs> like, I'm an idiot, but he's it's, it's much stupider than me, right? Like, and oh so it, the first, that the, is yeah, awful. the first I mean, two times like was it, fine. The third like time you... was the only time that it was properly. It was a bad atmosphere because I had an argument with Melanie Phillips, um, and I slightly lost my composure uh, in that moment which i sort of regret because you shouldn't i don't think you should give these people the satisfaction of knowing that they got to you but she did really get to me Nish, anything that you need to get people to buy tickets to edinburgh i'm doing edinburgh the last six days of the what's it uh, called it's in your nature to destroy yourselves <laughs> it's it's both a description of our current political climate and a quote from Terminator 2. <laughs> and sounds like a, a reason to be cheerful. Is that a reason to be cheerful? I think so. Well, be, it'll be, it'll, it'll I be, mean, you've seen the show, laughs. Jeff. There'll be laughs. <laughs> People feel optimistic at the end? Uh, yeah, yes, there is some really contrived optimism at the end. <laughs> that is in no way genuine, but it's just designed to end the show with a sort of semi-satisfying atmosphere. Do you think the Fatberg will be defeated by then? I think, hopefully, I'm hoping once I take my phone off airplane mode the fatberg will be dead do it now imagine if i get a text message saying the house has been consumed by the fatberg <laughs> i mean this is the first time i can honestly say that i have done a live commentary on whether a fatberg has been, been eliminated or not <laughs> I, I, this is worth losing the general election for honestly uh, uh... it's dead the fatberg Yay! is dead the Fatberg is dead! Kumar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff King and uh, Hannah White. Thank you to you. You've been a brilliant audience. Give yourself a big round of applause. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Even on a budget... Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.